A few years ago, Richard Branson, who is the CEO of Virgin, uh, well, the Virgin Companies, uh, he made an announcement that in his companies uh, they were going to cancel um, holiday allowances. And what he meant was each employee was going to be allowed unlimited holiday allowance. You could take a holiday from work whenever you wanted. Uh, you didn't need to sign a form. You didn't need to ask for it. You just took the day off if you wanted. Take the week off. Take the month off if you like. Nobody's going to follow up. Nobody's going to count how many you've had. Nobody's going to come back to you on it. I wonder what you think of that kind of policy. At first glance, it sounds fantastic. Uh, wow, you could have a three-day weekend every week. You could have a week off every month. It sounds uh, like a good deal. Until you th start thinking about the practicalities of how it would really work. And Richard Branson himself said, and you can imagine the cheeky twinkle in his eye as he said it, uh, that he's confident that people would only be taking these holidays if it wasn't going to jeopardise their careers. It seems like a good idea when it's first made, but actually when you start to think about it, it would probably become quite, um, quite a measure of uh, your commitment to the company. And what it would do is, rather than promoting people to take more time off, encouraging people to take more time, it would encourage people to take less time so that they could prove themselves as worthy and committed. There are a lot of things in life which at first glance or at first reading sound so so appealing, so freeing, uh, such a, a strong opportunity. But when we begin to follow them through, they, be, they become, we find, enslaving uh, and uh, oppressive and difficult and more hassle than they promised ever to be. They sound wise, but yet they become demanding. The gospel of Jesus is almost the exact opposite of those things. The gospel doesn't ask us to prove ourselves to be worthy. The gospel makes us acceptable on our behalf. It's that gospel that we're going to think about today from Paul's words in Colossians chapter 2 and chapter 3. And what he's going to do in these words is he's going to spend time reminding the Colossian Christians of their status, the new status that they have in Christ and the work that the gospel has done for them in giving them that and so freeing them from the demands of the world around them. I need this message because so often in my life I get sucked into the trap of seeking validation or value or purpose in things in the world around me. And sometimes I'm able to achieve those things and that makes me pride, proud. And sometimes I'm unable to live up to those standards and that can tend towards despair. Sometimes I feel inadequate due to my failings and my responsibilities that I have, due to my sin. Sometimes I feel guilty in my prayers because I've moved on from prayers of confession. I wonder, how can I pray anything? How can I ask God for anything when I myself have failed so many times? I need this reminder that Paul gives the Colossian Christians. 
And when I take those feelings on, when I become either proud or despairing, it's because I've forgotten who I really am in Christ. It's because I've forgotten what Jesus Christ has done for us. If you can recognise any of those feelings or responses that you have in your life, then I hope this message will be a help to you as well. So first, let's look at what Paul says. And a first part of the identity that Paul wants to get the Colossians to understand is that they have died with Christ. And now I'm looking at the first part, uh, chapter 2, verse 20, up to chapter 2, verse 23. Chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you still submit to its rules? You died with Christ to the basic principles of this world. Now, what are those basic principles, uh, you might ask? Well, they actually came up in chapter 2, verse 8, uh, as Paul's writing through his letter. And in chapter 2, verse 8, those basic principles seem to be those things which underpin the philosophies of this world. They are, you might say, the, the sources of glory. The, the means that the, the world uses to measure success and value. They are the way a person proves themselves. They are the ambitions of so many people. Um, they are the measures, perhaps, that define morality, even. Now, these basic principles underpin those philosophies that have been taught, and those philosophies actually are a, a strong theme in the letter of Colossians. It's clear, if you, if you read the whole letter, that there is some specific heresy that Paul is writing against. Now, I'm not going to try and work out what that specific heresy is or, or how, it, how it comes about. But it seems clear that the heresy is something to do with what was then called Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism held that there is a... Uh, because God is spirit, spiritual things must be good... And all matter must therefore be bad. This is one of the key ideas that underpinned Gnosticism. And it would take many forms and they could mix this idea with all sorts of other religions, including Christianity and Judaism uh, and other cults uh, of, the, of the time. Um, and so in order for these people to become acceptable to God, they would teach. You would have to, you'd have to aim for an ultra spiritual life. You'd have to aim for a special secret knowledge or an inner voice or an inner understanding. And you would have to shun any uh, pleasures of the world. You'd have to undergo severe self-discipline in order to prove that you have really separated yourself from the, the evil world, the physical matter that we live in. And it led then to their laws being all about how people interact with the world around them. You can see a glimpse of their laws in verse 20. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. It's all about how you interact with the world around you, how you interact with matter. What are you doing with your time and your hands and your, your, your taste buds and your, your energies? Don't do this, don't do that, don't do the other. For those of you who are familiar with the Bible, it, it might remind you of perhaps the Pharisees. And the way we see they, them portrayed in the Gospels. 
they had a real great emphasis on how each of them must act and the things they must do and the places they must go and the things they must wear and the way they must wash and the, the things they ought to eat. They have an overemphasis on these things uh, that they have to do. And what is compelling about these types of people, the Pharisees, uh, these heretics in Colossae, you could perhaps think, think of other similar cults, perhaps that are around today or have been in history, is that they, they seem so wise. They seem to be so pious and devoted to God. And Paul acknowledges that. Verse 23, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom. Why do they seem to be wise? Well, because the lives of these people who are following these laws seem to be all about worship. Everything they do is done in order to worship God or, or, or as an outflow of some law of God. The things that they own, the things that they wear, the places that they live, the places that they go, the way they use their time, the way they organise their family. Everything in their lives seem to be done through this lens of I ought to honour God. Perhaps even in, a, even in a stronger sense than Christians do. And it seems such a wise position to be in. Isn't it right to give your whole life to God? But although it's worship, you can see the adjective that Paul adds to it. Verse 23, he says it's self-imposed worship. And so it's not true worship at all. In fact, they're not really worshipping God at all. It's self-imposed worship. He means Instead of accepting from God who he is and how he ought to be worshipped according to his standards, they've chosen those things for themselves. We have decided what we will worship. We have decided how we will worship it. We have decided how often. We have decided the mode and the method and everything else that goes with it. And so it's not real worship at all. In fact, they're not even worshipping God anymore. They're worshipping Something, an idol of their own making. There seems to be, in these people's lives, an attitude of humility. You can imagine them. They're, they're not going to be the people with the extravagant cars and the big houses and the, uh, the flashy clothes and, uh, and, and all the benefits of the world. They're going to be people who wear the cheapest things and, and who have little money to spare because they've given it all away and they... they, uh, they they live in the poorest places, in the poorest neighbourhoods. They seem to be so humble and meek and mild. And yet, Paul says, it is false humility. Actually, although they don't have the material goods, they are still proud people. They're proud of their poverty, as it were. And there seems to be an emphasis in these people's lives on self-control. They have very harsh and strict routines. They get up early in the morning. They, they deny themselves the luxuries and perhaps even the necessities of life. They seem to have total control over their bodies and over their minds and over their wills and all that they do. It seems to be a wise position to be in following these laws. But Paul says, actually... This self-control is harsh treatment of the body. It's actually a misuse of the body. It's not honouring God. It's not using their body in the way it was designed to be used. 
It's a harsh treatment of it. It's a wrong use of it. And so despite these people appearing wise, in actual fact, their laws are shown to be empty. They're empty for two main reasons Paul focuses on. First is because their laws lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Verse 23. Yes, they might have some strict habits and strict routines. But their hearts are untouched. You know, it can often be helpful as you begin to fight a particular sin in your life to cut off the habits that most often lead you there. Uh, perhaps uh, the the use of uh, the Internet in your house or, or perhaps the things that you watch on TV or perhaps the things you read or the people that you engage with or the, the way that you engage with them. And sometimes when you first begin dealing with a sin, you might just want to cut off those avenues, which so often seem to be uh, the, the way that you end up falling into that sin. But if this is the only way that you ever fight sin, you'll find yourself playing a game of, of whack-a-mole. You know the game where all the little moles are popping up through the board and you've got your hammer and you're just whacking them down and as you whack one down there, another one pops up there and you whack that down and it pops up from somewhere else. You see, as we cut off sin just by cutting off the avenues that it approaches in, all that sin does is it, is it finds another avenue in our hearts to spring up in. If you cut off the internet, it won't stop you from having lustful thoughts, for example, if pornography is the, uh, the sin that you're trying to attack. You might cut off the avenue, you might, you might stop looking at pornography because you've not got the internet, you're not able to do it, but it won't deal with the lust in your heart. If you restrict yourselves to a, to a certain um, to, to a certain shopping list to, to try and counteract your greed when you go shopping, it might stop you putting on the weight, but it won't necessarily deal with the greed that's led you to put on that weight in the first place. Their the system of rules and laws and commands and legalism lacks any value in really dealing with the heart of the matter. So that's the first reason why it fails. And the, the other reason that Paul gives is because all their laws are destined to perish. All their laws are, are, are made by humans. Verse 22 I'm looking at. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teaching. Their whole system is built upon principles of this world. Laws and rules and instructions about what you eat and, and what you do and, and your food and your drink and your clothing and your exercise and so on. And one day all these things will pass away. And one day the minds and the wills and the, the attitudes of the humans who invented these rules will also pass away. And their minds and their, their influences will change. And these trends will change. So it all just passes away. It's fleeting. It's passing. It's of no eternal value. How can finite matter uh, have an influence on our eternal salvation? And so Paul attacks this teaching and he says to the Colossians in verse 20, he said, Why? Why do you continue to submit to these kinds of rules? Why do you submit to them? Because you have died to them. You're no longer bound by these rules. You're no longer subject to these types of laws. So why do you still go back to submitting to them? 
Now we'll think later on about how that death occurs. But at this point, you've got to see that what Paul's telling them is that their, their value is not determined by their interactions with things in this world. Their value in life is not determined by the way they eat or drink or handle or dress or, or live. That's not what defines them. That's not what gives them their status. That's not what grants them their salvation. That's not what defines their purpose in life. What does all this mean for us? Well, those principles of the world, those basic principles that were at work behind these laws of the, of the heretics in Colossae are still the same principles that are at work in the world today. Now, you don't often, as often, see it in the exact same heresy that was being taught in Colossae. But you might see it in certain types of religion and you might see it mixed with Christianity. You can be a good Christian. In fact, you need to do these things if you are going to be a good Christian. Certain rules or standards about the way you dress, about what things you read, about how often you read, about the sort of songs that you sing, about the sort of church that you go to. About the way you use your money, about which charities you give to, about how often you give, about how often you read, about how often you pray. Laws, standards, rules are set in place that say you are no good as a Christian unless you meet this standard. That's one way it can show itself in religion. But these basic principles pop up in all sorts of other parts of the parts of our lives as well. You think of uh, money and possessions, for example. You're not good enough unless you've got this type of house or unless you wear these types of clothes or unless you drive the right sort of car. Whatever it might be, perhaps beauty and health and vitality. I am most valuable, we tell ourselves or others tell us, I am most valuable when I am strongest or fittest or fastest. I am most worthwhile when I look most beautiful. I was more pleasing when I was younger. True salvation would be salvation from the aging process. To be eternally young. Perhaps it's to do with children and our families. I have succeeded if my children succeed. I have succeeded if I'm able to get married and have children. I have succeeded if my children get a place at such a certain school or such a certain university. When we hear or feel or sense these sorts of demands from the world around us, what we're sensing is the same basic principles at work. In Colossae, they led certain heretics to say, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. In 21st century England, they lead us to say, do not pay or pay out or go there or do this or dress like this or wear that or have this or don't have that. Eat this. It's the same basic principle at work. And, and it's, it's binding. 
when Paul describes the Colossians' relationship to these laws, he, he describes it as submission. They have control over these people. And in the same way, when we submit ourselves to these sorts of ideas that the world loves to peddle, or that we love to teach ourselves if it's about our religion and about the way we do our Christianity, then it's binding. Now, to realise what Paul is telling them, that you have died to these basic principles, to realise that becomes intensely freeing. Because, Because if your life is lived in pursuit of those things, you will either find yourself eternally exhausted because you're chasing after a goal that you can never, ever meet. You can never be rich enough. You can never be beautiful enough. Your children can never be successful enough. You can never be religious enough. You can never be good enough for God. You can never pray often enough. You're either chasing a standard that you can never ever meet or else you're stuck in despair because you've already lost the standard and it's outside of your control to rectify it. How do you become a successful wife if you can never get married? How do you become a successful father if you can't have children how do you become a rich man if you can't get a job you're either chasing a a, a goal that you can't reach and, and so wear yourself out through exhaustion or you're stuck in despair because you can't move even one step closer towards the goal and paul says you have died to those basic principles You're not bound by them anymore. They do not define you. Your value in life is not derived from from these things. Your value in life is not derived from the way you act or the way you live. And so neither your successes and your abilities, which make us proud, nor your failures and your flaws, and dare I say even your sins, are the things that define us. Neither your successes nor your failures are the things that define us. Neither are the things that give us our value. Neither are the means that we use to to earn our salvation. It's not how we measured. It's not the way our status is given to us. It's not the way we are saved. And so if you're free from these things, why do you submit to them any longer? An important question for reflection for many of us tonight will be, what what principles of this world do I find myself submitting to time and time again? And once you've identified those, remind yourself, I have died to them and so I am free from them. Now, Paul doesn't only focus on our death. He then moves on and he wants us to point us to where our life really is found. And he says, I'm now looking at chapter 3, verse 1 to 4. He says, chapter 3, verse 3, you died, uh, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now, this is what Paul means. Paul's got an understanding of the gospel that goes something like this. And, and Joseph touched on this this morning. He says, through faith, a Christian is, it, it, we're not just believing certain things about Jesus, but actually we're brought into a special relationship with Jesus. 
we are united to him. And this uniting with Christ is is so unique, it's it's really quite difficult to find a good analogy for it. But marriage is probably the the best analogy, and it's the, the analogy that the Bible gives, actually. When you get two people who are married, for example, the debts of one are now the responsibility of the other as well. When you get two people get married, the, the joys and the victories and the successes of one are also the cause of celebration for the other. When you've got two people getting married, the, if, you, if you oppress and persecute and harm one, really you're also oppressing and persecuting and harming the other. These two people have become one in their marriage relationship. And this is a little bit like what, what the Bible means when it talks about Christians being united with Christ. The two have become one. And it's really difficult, actually, to overstate the, the, the closeness of this unity. Theologically, it's, it's quite difficult to overstep the mark as to just how closely united we are with Jesus Christ. So much so that Paul can say that when Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, you were dying with him. If you're a believer. So close is our unity. I was in him when he was dying. In chapter 2 verse 14. Paul says that on the cross when Jesus died. Something unique was happening. Having. Chapter 2 verse 14. Paul says. Having cancelled the written code. With its regulations that was against us. And that stood opposed to us. He took it away. Nailing it. To the cross. See the two sides of the coin here. There is a written code that God has given, His law, His standard, that we are measured against. And of course, we all fail that standard. We all sin. We all short, fall short of the glory of God. And so that standard of God condemns us. It condemns us because we're the ones who have broken it. But God cancelled that written code by nailing it to the cross. Well, what does that mean? There wasn't a piece of paper flapping about in the wind when Jesus was on the cross. The only thing that was nailed to the cross was Jesus himself. And so on the cross, the the code that condemned me is the thing that put Jesus to death. And so in this way, Jesus is said to die in our place. He's dying in our place. Now, often when when you talk about Jesus dying in our place, it can be easy to get a misunderstanding of what's happening. Uh, Rachel, my wife, is um, uh, actually she's not, but she was intending to read The Tale of Two Cities by uh, Charles Dickens. Fantastic book. And at the end, I'm going to give you the spoiler. It's been out several hundred years. If you've not read it already, you need to get your get, get an act together. You know, at the end, you've got Sidney Carton. And he decides to take the place of Charles Darnay. Charles Darnay is on death row, or he's about to be executed, basically, in the French Revolution. And Sidney Carton sneaks into the jail, swaps place with him, and Sidney Carton is executed instead of him. And so you could say that Sidney Carton takes the place of James Darnay. He suffers in his place. But when you say that, what you mean is there's a case of mistaken identity. Charles Darnay should have been executed, but uh, Sidney Carton was executed instead. There's a mix-up. Something's gone wrong. It's fallen on the wrong person. 
But what Paul says has happened to us is because we are united with Christ on the cross, it's not a case of mistaken identity. It's not a case of ah, the hammer should have fallen on us, but oh, it's moved and fallen on Jesus instead. Actually, we united to Jesus, the hammer has fallen on us. But because we are in Christ, Christ has suffered that blow on our behalf. And that's the way that Christ has suffered for us. Not as someone separate to us, but as someone joined to us, united to us. And in his suffering, Paul goes on to say, he was able to disarm the powers and authorities, making a spectacle of them. Paul's reasoning is that those basic principles of the, of the world that we've spoken about already, they are, they are used by the powers and authorities, the spiritual forces behind the, the wickedness and evil of this world to condemn us, to accuse us. The spiritual forces use those basic principles to show us our failings and to trap us into this cycle of proud striving or, or pitiful despairing. And on the cross, it's as if Jesus stood in our place and on our behalf said, come on, throw everything you've got at me. Drag up all your accusations that you can dream of. Dredge up the worst of the filth of the sin of all the people that are joined to me and and lay it on me. Do your absolute worst. And they did. God made him who knew no sin to be sin not just quite sinful but to be sin itself he was the he was the epitome of what it is uh, to sin all of sin was, was laid upon jesus they accused him of, of everything they could throw at him they tempted him they taunted him they mocked him they insulted him and for a moment it looked like they'd won because jesus suffered the penalty due to that sin he died But in the end, it was shown that Jesus was making a spectacle of them because death couldn't hold him. And God raised him. And in raising him, God says to to us and to the world and to those powers, he says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Him and all those in him. Jesus' goodness is greater than all the wickedness of the world combined. Jesus is purity, is purer than all the dirtiness and the filth of the sin of all of his people combined. And so he's able to take that upon himself. He's able to pay that price and he's raised to life afterwards. And Paul says, you know, just as verse 20 Just as we died with Christ, sharing his death on the cross, dying to those accusations of the the spiritual forces and the principles of this world. So also we have been raised with Christ. Chapter three, verse one. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. If we share in his death, we share in his resurrection. And so everything true about Jesus in his resurrection is now also true about us. Is Jesus shown to be the son of God? So also you are shown to be a child of God. Is Jesus shown to have authority over all of God's creation? So too you have authority over all God's creation. You will rule as and reign as a king and a queen. 
Is Jesus glorified and exalted to the highest place? So we also will one day be glorified and exalted into the very presence of God. Does Jesus, does Jesus' resurrection show that his life was lived entirely for God? Serving God, pleasing God, honouring God? That status, that obedience now belongs to us as well. That is the robe that we are clothed in. That is the righteousness that we are dressed in. The goodness, the obedience of Jesus. Was Christ's life and sacrifice accepted by God? Then so too are you accepted by God. If you are joined to Christ in faith. And if these things are true, then where do we need to go to look for validation? Where do we need to go to find our value? Where do we need to go to show that we are good enough? How do we demonstrate to ourselves and to others that we have met the standard? Our life is hid in Christ. Not in our works, not in our obedience, not in our abilities and strengths, not in our talents, not in our families, not in our money, not in anything else. It's in Christ. Our life is hid in Christ. Just like a sportsman might say cycling is his life. Just like a politician might say his job is his life. Just like a musician might say his instrument is his life. Just like a mother might say his children, her children are her life. Any Christian can say Christ is my life. Here's what I live for. Here's what gives me value. Here's what gives me purpose. Here's the reason I know I am worth something. Here's the reason I know that I will be invited into God's presence. That I will have eternal life. Because he's there already. My life is hid there with him. He is my life. And so if he's there, I will also be there. Because I'm joined to him inseparably. There's no longer any stressful chasing after validation. There's no longer any wondering about whether we've kept the rules well enough. There's no longer any despair at our failures or our lost opportunities. Because Christ is all our success and he absorbs all of our failures. Now, if the if the reminder that we have died to the principles of this world was a freeing thing, a liberating thing. Then the reminder that we have been raised with Christ surely is a, a motivating thing. Chapter three, verse one, since you have been raised with Christ, if this is true and it is, if you are joined to him in faith, then set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. If he is my life, he's the one I'm aiming for. He's the one I'm striving for. He is my ambition. And so my life is not lived trying to prove myself by submission to the basic principles of this world. My life is lived in obedience, setting my sights, not on earthly treasures, but on heavenly treasures, on the heavenly treasure, Christ himself. I hope that's been an encouragement to you.